I'll try to make myself. So here we are with this chapter. What, what's happened? Well, Jesus is on a journey. And uh, on this journey, he's left Judea and he's going back to Galilee, which is where he's been conducting most of his ministry. And uh, one of the ways he can go back, one of the routes, probably the most direct route, is through an area called Samaria. Now, historically, Samaria was part of the Promised Land, was part of the land that God had given to his people when he brought them out of captivity. Then there had been a division, ten tribes and two tribes, and the ten tribes were called Israel, and the two tribes were called Judah, and the ten tribes went into captivity because of their disobedience to God, and never existed again as a separate nation. It was the end. And what happened was the people of that land intermarried with people from the conquering nations and other nations. So although originally they had been Israelites, they now became a very mixed people, um, ethnically mixed, religiously mixed, uh, although a lot of what they believed was the same as the people in Judah believed, but not quite the same. And they didn't worship in Jerusalem, they worshipped in a different place, in Mount Gerizim, and things like that. And to be honest, the Jews and the Samaritans were pretty much at enmity. They didn't get on with each other at all. So the fact that Jesus chose to go through Samaria was quite surprising. It would have been surprising for many Jews. Now up to this point in his ministry, he hasn't told anyone that he's the Messiah. And it's surprising, isn't it, that he chooses to do that first of all, not in Israel, not in Judah, but in Samaria. And there's quite a lot of surprises in the story. He's, uh, John's been telling us, uh, and if you read the story, it's very much like an eyewitness testimony. So either someone who was there told John exactly what happened, John might have been one of the disciples who went off to get the food, or he might, maybe not all the disciples went, we're not actually told. But clearly, as you read the story, someone was there. Perhaps even the woman told John all about it at a, a later time, because Jesus was there for a few days. But anyway, this woman, everything about her is a bit different. For a start, she goes out to get her water in the middle of the day. Oh, people didn't do that. Women went to get the water. Sorry, ladies, but that's what women did, okay? In Israel, and in fact, the Middle East, and I think it still happens to this day in parts of the Middle East, the women went out to get the water in the morning when it was cool, or in the evening when it was cool. They didn't go in the middle of the day. And actually, um, I and this is not a sexist remark, it's a true remark, and I wish I was better at it. Women used these times to talk to each other and find out about what was going on. And so they made the time worthwhile to them. But this woman was on her own, in the middle of the day. She was a little bit of an outcast, even in a nation that the people of Judah thought of as outcasts. And she was an outcast because of her way of life. 
She had a pretty crazy lifestyle. She'd been married five times. We're not told whether she'd been divorced four times, or five times maybe, or whether her husbands had died, but she'd had five husbands. The way the story tells it, it sounds like the marriages had broken down. Because when Jesus says to her, go and call your husband, she says, I haven't got one. Uh, that's an interesting answer for her to give. Uh, and maybe most people would have just accepted it as that, but of course Jesus knows what you're thinking. Knows everything about your history. God does. God knows everything about me and everything about you. He would not be God otherwise. And so Jesus says, well, you know, that's a fair comment. You haven't got a husband at the moment. You've got a living lover. But you've had five husbands. But I don't think he said it like that. I think he said it very gently. I think he said it very kindly. I think he said something like, I know, you, your life's a mess, isn't it? You need some help. I, I, I know how much you need help. And from that, he goes on to tell her he's the one and the only one who can help. And clearly by the time we come to the passage we're picking up, this has had a profound effect on her. The fact that Jesus has said to her, I'm the Messiah, has shaken her. And then we get this sort of slightly two-scene story, don't we? For the, the passage we read, there's two scenes, aren't there? There's the, there's the disciples in Jesus and there's the woman going back to the town and talking to the people in the town and, and the story interweaves the two things at the same time. They're at this, the, the village or the town is called Sychar. Perhaps that's where the disciples have just been. It's obviously close by and they've been there to get food and they've come back and she's come out of Sychar to get water and now she's gone back. So they're all mixed up. And a lot of people who preach this passage sort of do it all together. And, and I can understand that. But it seems to me that this second part is quite key to the whole gospel story of what Jesus intends to do and of why Jesus is vital to you today and to me today. Well, the disciples come back and uh, they see Jesus talking to a woman and that would have been quite a surprise for them. First of all, Jesus was regarded as a rabbi of course, one of the rabbinic prayers was, thank you, Lord, that I'm not a woman. Good, isn't it? That's one of the prayers they used to pray. And they didn't... And one of the rabbis, one of the famous rabbis, had written, don't waste your time teaching women. Crazy, isn't it? But that was the way they were. And so, to some extent, the, the disciples would have been surprised to see Jesus talking to this 
woman. But actually the disciples had learned something. Because they don't say anything, they shut up. They keep quiet. Because they know that Jesus knows what he's doing. And the point that I want to make to you today is that Jesus cares deeply for the well-being of women and children and men. Not the other way around, okay? Let's understand that. A lot of people say Christianity puts women down. It doesn't. God elevates women. And so, I want to look at three things in this passage, and we're going to have three words this morning and three words this evening, so hopefully at the end of the day, the sermon won't be too difficult to understand. So three words this morning that hopefully will lead us through this passage. Food, fields, and faith. Okay? Food, fields, and faith. Now, what Jesus sets out to do here is to teach his disciples that some things are much more important than things we would regard as basic or the essentials of life. The disciples are anxious that Jesus will not be so hungry that he'll get faint. Perhaps they even thought, oh, I'm glad we got back with some food. He's so hungry, it's affecting his judgment. But he didn't say anything. And so, having talked to this woman about living water, he now moves to the subject of food with his disciples. And he tells them something about food. He says, look at verse 32, or verse 31. Rabbi, his disciples urged him, eat something. He said, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So, Jesus calls their attention to something more important to him and to them than food. He says there is something more important. And he was probably thinking of Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 3. So if you're making notes, write that down and have a look at it when you go home. I'm going to read it now anyway. But it's worth thinking about because... When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, when he had been fasting for 40 days, this was the verse that he used. And uh, Moses is speaking and telling the people of Israel about how God has dealt with them. And he says, in verse 3, He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. It was a lesson they had to learn. Some things are more important. Now you say, okay, well that was the Old Testament. But as I said, Jesus used the same 
that very verse when he was facing the devil down in the wilderness. He said, said the devil said, go on, I've said, turn these stones into food, you can do it. He said, no. Man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God is more important to obey God. Now, everybody has heard about the Sermon on the Mount, or sometimes there's a similar sermon given on the plain. And in the course of that sermon, Jesus said something very similar. In chapter 6 of Matthew, verse 31, he puts it like this. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added. It's not that you don't need food. It's not that you don't need drink. It's not that you don't need clothes. Do you think God doesn't know that you need all those things? Of course he does. He made you. He knows how you work. He knows how your body works. He knows how you think. And it's interesting, isn't it? I think today, if you go on on the internet, you'll find that the most searched for Items are the things that Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. Food, clothes, drink, all those sort of things. They're the most searched for things on the internet today. Don't tell me the Bible's not up to date. It is. Incredible. And Jesus is saying, look, there are things that are more important. And you need to keep that in mind. So let me say four things which I think he is pointing us to. Jesus said, I always do those things which please you. He was praying to his Father. I always do those things which please you. The will of his Father was inviolable to Jesus. It was the the one thing he would not break. And of course it was essential that he did not break it because when he died on the cross it wasn't for his own sins. Couldn't be for his own sins because he never had any. He was able to die for my sins and for your sins if you trust him. Doing God's will was life-giving to Jesus. This was what filled his time. This is what thrilled him. I always do my Father's will. I did not come to do my own will. I came to do the will of Him who sent me. That's what I'm here for. This is what my life's about. And doing God's will was a lifelong determination for Jesus. Right to the end on the cross. That's why He could say, on the cross, in all the agony, dying, in all his humanity, feeling every ounce of pain, he could say, it is finished. I've done it. Everything that the Father asked me to do, I've done. Every person he asked me to save, I've saved. All done. And that was his life. 
Every word that comes out of the mouth of God was his life to live in. So then, what's the most important thing to you? Where does pleasing God come in your list? Pleasing your children? Pleasing your wife? Pleasing your parents? Pleasing your teachers? These are all good things. Probably find another 50, couldn't you, if you sat and thought about it? So where does pleasing God come? Is that at the top of the list? Is that what gets you up in the morning? Today, I am going to live for God. And all the other things that I have to do will be done in that framework because I'm living this day for God. I am doing my schoolwork for God. I am doing my office work or my factory work for God. I am bringing up my family for God. I am looking after my family for God. I'm Oh, everything I do is within that frame because I am seeking first the kingdom of God that's at the top of my is it at the top of your list can it be at the top of your list for your life that you're going to look to honour God in everything you do and the way you honour God well, God's given you an instruction book. Here it is. If you don't read it, you won't know how to honour him. You won't know what to do. So read it. It'll help. And it'll lead you on. And so, Jesus said to his disciples, this is the way to live. And then I want to think about fields. Look at verse 35. Jesus talking to his disciples again. He says, Don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They're ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap that you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you've reaped the benefits of their labour. I want you to try and put yourself in the picture in this particular scene because this is, I mentioned there's two scenes going on. There's Jesus and his disciples and there's the woman who's gone back to Sychar. And what's happened when the woman's gone back to Sychar? What she tell people? What's happened? And what have the people done? They've decided to go find Jesus. So what is Jesus seeing when he says this? Think about it. He's got his disciples by him. And there are people coming out of the town, aren't they? And they're coming across the fields towards him. And when he lifts up his eyes, that's what he sees. So the fields are the people. 
And that's what his disciples are seeing. The fields are the people. The harvest of God's kingdom has begun. Jesus is already harvesting people into the kingdom of God. It's not something that's not going to happen until after he's died. He's doing it already. He sees fields, places filled with multitudes of lost souls. We're told elsewhere in the Bible that he looked on the people and he saw them like sheep without a shepherd. That's a field, isn't it? Like sheep without... He saw them. They needed care. And they needed discipline. I actually have a sheep. Probably one. <laughs> I'll tell you, it taught me a big lesson. I always thought sheep were stupid. Sheep are not stupid. Sheep are willful. They know what they're doing. And they know if they want something, they'll do anything to get it. So fences can be knocked over if you don't build them. And when Jesus looked on the people as sheep without a shepherd, he didn't just see them in some sort of sentimental way as people who needed to be fed. He saw them as people who needed to be looked after properly. And he sees these people coming across the fields and he says to his disciples, look, the fields have wiped the harvest. And the disciples said, it's not harvest time. And he said, look, the prophets have already sowed the seed. It's there in the Torah and, and the other parts of the Old Testament, the books that you've got. It's all there. The seeds have been sown. Now get out there and reap it. This is amazing, isn't it? Because one day, all the harvest will be in, and the reapers and sowers will all rejoice together. They won't say, it was all my part, or all their part, or all their part. They'll all do it together. Because they'll all realise they were part of the same work. And this is our experience of Christianity, isn't it? This is what it's like. Now, I guess there's plenty who think you could stand up here and do this. Well, just have a go. <laughs> if you want to go, I'll get out of the way. And I'll tell you something. You will believe how scared I am every time I get up here. Honestly. And I don't say that because I want your sympathy. But the people of my church, where I attend... 40 years ago, 43 years ago, had a meeting and said, we believe God has given you the ability to preach and you've got to do it. Now it may be that there are some of you here who will one day have that experience and it will never get any easier. But if God has given you the gift to do that, you have to do it. And if God has given you the gift to help in the young people's work, or to help in the children's work, or to help with the older folks, and he's given you the ability to do that, you've got to do it. And you, you don't need to think like we do sometimes with our cameo group, our old folks group. Oh, is this, are we making any impact? You don't have to think that. You just have to think, this is what the Lord has gifted me to do, I'll do it. I'll leave the rest to him. Maybe some of those old people will never be saved in our group. 
But they may go somewhere else and hear somebody else. And they may be saved there. Because that's the way God works. And one day there's going to be a day when it will all come together. And actually that's in the Old Testament, at least. I'm going to quote one verse from the Old Testament which talks about it. I could probably quote a lot of others. But in the prophecy of Amos and uh, chapter 9, verse 13, Amos says this, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from the hills and I will bring my people Israel back from exile. Now the people were in captivity at that time and God was promising they'd be brought back. But he was looking beyond that. Far beyond that. To the day when such will be the harvest of the kingdom of God that they'll be preparing the next harvest while the first one's going on. It'd be amazing. Incredible. No, the disciples didn't get it. They said it's not time for the harvest yet. Perhaps you're a bit like that. You've got you've got that inkling that God has given you a gift. Sometimes you, you don't even know he's given you a gift, but he's given you an opportunity. He's given you a door to walk through. And you're saying, not yet. Not yet. Now, if your church is anything like other churches I know, it's the same ten people doing everything. Why aren't you doing so? Why aren't you? Ask yourself that question. Jesus was asking his disciples the question. And, of course... After Jesus had died on the cross and risen from the dead, he met his disciples again. You, you know what he said to them. Most of you will know what he said to them. It's, read it in the Gospels. Go! Go! Into all the world. Preach the Gospel to every creature. Teach them to obey everything that I've taught you. And lo... I'm going to be with you always, even till the end of the age. Go on, go do it. All of you, go and do it. Because that's our challenge today. The harvest is certain. It's been won by the Lord Jesus Christ. He's finished the work. And so we're, in that sense, we're all reapers of a harvest we haven't sown. We've got to just get out there. And find the field that God has given us. Because it is there. And we need to find it. Because the harvest needs laborers. Some of you young people, I think, have probably come to know Jesus as your Savior recently. And it's all very different. But you know... Start thinking about now how you're going to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Start thinking about it now. Because you'll have more energy in your young years than you'll ever get. Have 
when you get older, I'll tell you that. So start thinking about how you can serve God now. And then all of us have to think about the harvest of our own Christian life. What's the harvest in our lives? What fruit are we producing? Because Jesus talks about us producing fruit. Peter put it like this. Second letter he wrote to Christians who were being persecuted and were all over the Turkey mostly. But, but he, he says this to them in uh, 2 Peter chapter 1. Verse 5, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, to goodness knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, you're not supposed to be ineffective and unproductive. You're supposed to be the opposite. Well, think about it. Lastly, faith. Well, verse 39 and follows tells us something about that, about the Samaritans, about the woman's testimony. First of all, there was simple faith in what the woman said to them. That they... She came into the town. I was listening to uh, a sermon by Alistair Begg. I don't know whether you ever listened to Alistair Begg, but he's very challenging and he's got a great sense of humour. Really clever. But he said, I've got this, he said, I've got this image of this woman going back to Sychar. And she's walking down the street saying, I've met the Messiah. I've met the Messiah. And all the men in the place are going, oh, no, she is David. And she's going, well, I've met the Messiah, really. You, you've got to come and see him. He's, he's told me everything about myself. He's exposed me to myself. And he must be the Messiah. And you've got to come and see him. And at first, you can think people are going, no. But then they begin to think, wow, she really believes it. And because of the, her testimony, we're told that people believed in her, believed in him. She, they hadn't even been seeing him. But because of what she said, they actually believed he might be the Messiah. And then they decide to go out. And they all come flowing out of the town of Sychar. And, and how weird it must have felt like. All these people suddenly going to see this man they'd never heard of because of this woman that they all looked down on. But she'd been changed, hadn't she? And they could see she'd been changed. Could people see that you've been changed, that you're different. Because faith changes us. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of God. And as we hear and understand God's word, it changes us. We need to hear the gospel before we can believe it properly. And God often uses the testimony, the life testimony of a simple, ordinary, if I can say there's such a thing, believer to make a profound effect in the life of other people. I've 
I may have mentioned before, John Bunyan, who was just, you'd have to put him up there, wouldn't you, if you had to have your top ten of people in history who've been amazing Christians. John Bunyan wrote a book that, apart from the Bible, is the most read book, spent 12 years in Bedford Prison for his refusal. And it wasn't his refusal not to believe in Jesus. No, they didn't mind him believing in Jesus. They told him he couldn't preach. And he said, well, I'm going to preach. If you let me out of here, I'm going to preach. So they kept him in prison. But you know how he was converted. Or one of the ways that led to his conversion. He was a tinker. He used to mend pots and pans. And he would go around. That was his job. And he was thinking about Christianity. And he thought he knew quite a lot about Christianity. And he thought that he was doing okay. He had a pretty bad life. But now he was doing okay with his thinking about being religious and following God. And he said, one day I was in Bedford with my pots and pants, going around fixing people's pots and pants. And there were some of the poorer women of the town sitting, talking to each other about Jesus. And their understanding of Jesus was so much higher than mine that I ran away practically. Because I couldn't even talk to them. Because I realized that they knew Jesus in a way that I didn't. We don't know their names. We know John Bunyan's name, don't we? And he became a member of their church eventually. So never be afraid to speak a simple word about Jesus. It's not easy, is it? Never is easy. I think Rico Tice calls it the pain barrier that comes in every conversation you have with somebody when you have to say something about your Christianity. But you never know what God will do. And then faith solidifies and grows. It might be that you, God's going to use you as the first step to bring somebody here. And then as they come here week by week by week, they learn. And their faith grows. This is what happened here. These people came. And when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just, of, just because of what you said. Now... We've heard for ourselves. And we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. Isn't it amazing that when God calls you to be a Christian, he calls you to tell people about the most important thing that anybody needs to know. Jesus is the saviour of the world. He is he is your saviour if you trust him. But he's not your saviour if you reject him. So do you have faith? Do you know Jesus like that? Have you trusted him like that? Well, do you know? You might think you're really weak. And feeble but God may have a great plan for you 
So trust him. Seek first his kingdom. And he'll use you for his glory. And may his name